Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast. I'm Don Helbig, alongside Ryan Sir and Ryan, for Episode 6, it's a topic that you and I could talk about forever. It's leveraging your season pass. That's right, Don. This is a conversation that you and I have had for a long time, not unlike the you know, perfect mobile app. Uh, you and I are both uniquely qualified to talk about this, me for one good reason, and that's because I'm a very involved season pass member to several parks, and you've got two reasons why. Obviously, you work in the industry, and then tell me about your history as a season pass holder. Well, I was a season pass holder to a number of different parks uh, for 26, 27 years before I started working in the industry. I was one of the you know, early members of the Kings Island season pass program, getting my pass in 1981. Now, they started selling passes in 1979, but it wasn't a big thing. you know. So I was like pass holder 10,000, you know, I think it was like 881 or something like that. Uh, but back then, and for a number of years, you know, for the first 10, 11 years that I had season passes to all these different parks, all it really was was uh, was a season long admission ticket. Really, uh, you, there were no benefits. You didn't get free parking. You didn't get uh, discounts on meals and merchandise. You didn't get any kind of real special events or anything that were exclusive for pass holders. So it took a while for the industry to uh, really start leveraging the pass base, doing some exclusive events for them, and finding other uh, to engage them. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but um, you know, the really the first like foot in the door benefit that really uh, came out in like the late '80s, early '90s was originally season passes didn't even include parking in most parks, so it was uh, you know a thirty or forty dollar add on or twenty five to thirty dollar add on, um, and then they started throwing that in, and that was kind of the foot in the door to kind of like the craziness we see today. You know, I mean, there are everything from ten percent off merchandise to free beer is a is a season yeah. pass perk so uh, that's a really interesting evolution of the uh of the actual whole uh, industry in itself you know because it seems like um there's a lot of uh there's a lot of effort especially in the early season put into um transferring somebody from a daily ticket holder to a season pass holder there's like an upsell there's an upgrade involved in that um you know besides the immediate revenue of bringing somebody from a you know, $50 ticket to a hundred dollar season pass. What are some of the benefits of, of bringing people up to that level? Well, I think, you know, as parks look ahead, you know, many parks need to convert uh, more of the one-off visitor to season pass holders uh, for more profitable future. Really? Uh, you know, you want to be able to lock that in and be able to forecast down the road a little bit better. Uh, you know, improve those growth opportunities, whether that's uh, new attractions, maybe hotels, um, maybe it's acquisitions. Uh, you know, so the season pass base, having a strong season pass base is going to be able to allow you to do that. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, having a season pass basis, uh, I mean, it's guaranteed future business in a lot of ways. It's uh, it's guaranteeing revenue right now. So obviously there's... They're yeah, and something else. <clears throat> yeah, and something else here, Ryan, too, you got to think about, too, when, when you have a season pass, um, it solves two problems for you. Uh, the first problem it's going to solve is bad weather. Mm -hmm. You know, that tends to depress the one-off sales. Uh, you know, they're going to, you know, if it looks like it's going to rain, maybe the day they're going to come, they maybe push it off later and never get around to coming. But when you have a season pass, you know, okay, well, we'll go the next day or we'll go next week, you know. So it really helps solve those problems, too. Uh, when you're, uh, you know, an amusement theme park, outdoor attractions, uh, you know, you're so weather dependent. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can completely agree with that. And I can tell you that, um, you know, when I plan trips to parks where, um, you know, I don't have a season pass, if I'm going, you know, 100 miles to the, the next city over, um, mm -hmm. I look at the weather. You know, if it's going to be too hot, too cold or raining, yeah, we'll do it the next week or something. And then maybe we don't go, you know, but with the season pass, it's like. It's going to rain Tuesday. Let's go on Wednesday. So that's kind of a luxury. It's almost a benefit to both. You know, the parks get their attendance and you get the flexibility involved with it. Um, yeah. And years ago, you might have bought that advanced ticket, um, you know, seven, 10 days out. But now, you know, everybody has, uh, you know, the weather app on their phones and they're looking at that. They're looking at the forecast. And it, it really, a season pass just changes that for you. So it also going to be able to generate that repeat business. Uh, you're going to build loyalty for your park, you know, through a season pass base. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with that. And it's um, it's a whole database of customers that you have for the whole year, at least. And and, and in most instances, you have for several years because it seems like a lot of people are renewals. Um, but let me ask you this: um, with when when you mm. When you sell individual tickets, you get uh, a certain amount of revenue. When you sell a season pass, it's an it's a it's an upsell from that. 
So it's usually a hundred to two hundred dollars for for a seasonal park for a season pass. Um, potentially speaking, if somebody were to visit say four or five times on an individual ticket, that would technically be more revenue. Uh, and assuming that people are going to do that, what are some of the things you can do to offset the revenue loss from having one lump sum payment at the beginning of the season rather than smaller incremental payments that end up being more for admission? Yeah, I think what you find across the industry, if it's a seasonal park, uh, you know, the, the non-pass holder was probably going to visit maybe two, three times. Uh, so, you, you know, you're okay there. But when you look at, you know, a, a Disney World, Disneyland uh, Universal that's opened, you know, year round. And, you know, you had those, you know, seven day tickets, that type of a thing, the annual pass, you know, definitely you want to look to, to find other ways to offset that revenue when you do it that way. But you do things, you know, to, to increase that in-park spending, uh, you know, you add maybe dining plans, drink plans, uh, you have opportunities to buy tickets for friends, uh, you have, you know, exclusive events for the pass holders to get them to come, you know, on specific dates. Uh, so there's things like that that you would want to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, now, one thing I've noticed is that um, parks often try to start having their strongest campaigns in most instances, not all, uh, in like the early to late fall rather than closer to opening day. What are the thought processes behind that? I mean, is that a holiday related thing for the most part? Well, I think the drive, uh, you know, to get people to buy season passes, it's important no matter when, you know, park's going to decide to put them on sale. Uh, the benefit of going on sale, you know, late summer or in the fall, you know, is getting that advanced commitment for the next year. Uh, you're gaining additional visits, uh, you know, this year, you know, if that's part of the plan where you can come once or twice or maybe, you know, on the remaining operating dates, uh, you know, so you have that opportunity there. I think it adds value for the pass holder, you know, if they can come and visit. Uh, the current year when they buy a pass for the next year. I think that's a good thing for them. Um, I think you also know, you know, it, it gives you a chance to really start, you know, being able to forecast for the next year. You know, in January, February, kind of what your upcoming season may look like based on, on what you do in the fall. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that some of the data behind it is actually pretty, pretty valuable um, because, you know, if you, especially if you announce like a new ride, I feel like that's the one instance where you're going to get a big rush early on because you can market the two together. Um, and then you can know like, okay, we're going to have a heavy early season. Um, so forecasting would be, would be pretty strong if you knew that. Um, I, I, I still like, you know, I mentioned it at the top of the question though, but I think that the holidays are, are very important with that. I know that some parks run their own campaigns for Christmas and Black Friday and stuff like that. Um, I always thought that it was a weird gift to, to get. I, I I know you and I outside of the podcast have had the conversation. You said that you always got the season mm -hmm. pass for for Christmas. Um, I never did. Uh, I I started getting mine when I was like twelve or thirteen from cutting grass and stuff. I don't cut grass anymore, just for the record, because that's I hate that. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, um, I always thought that it was a tough sell for 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 a Christmas gift simply because you can't use it for four or five more months. You know, but I, I guess that that's not always a, a rain through mentality, but I always felt like giving a Kings Island or a Cedar Point or a Six Flags season pass for Christmas uh, is, is kind of like a, a weird gift to give. It's like giving a pool noodle for Christmas, you know, because you can't use it for a while. Um, but there are campaigns behind it. So I'm guessing that it is that it is successful industry wide. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I remember getting the pass for Christmas and, you know, knowing that I could not use it, you know, for another, you know, four or five months. Uh, but, you know, there's every park has, you know, a certain time that they're going to do it. And for some, it is going to be that fall season. You know, if you have Halloween events, you have a, a holiday event, you know, in, in November, December, that's a good time to do it. Uh, but if you're a park that maybe closes, you know, Labor Day, that's the end of your operating season. You know, you can wait a little bit longer to do it. Uh, there's not going to be any, you know, urgency to buy a season pass, uh, you know, in August, September, if the last operating day is Labor Day. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I think that the, the urgency involved would be, you know, on the park's end as far as the holiday thing. Um, you know, I'm thinking about it and maybe I'm being a little hypocritical because I remember distinctly um, getting like fishing tackle. I was really into fishing when I was younger and I remember getting fishing tackle for Christmas and I was so excited about it, even though I wouldn't be able to use it until basically the same time of year for when the seasonal parks open. But that's neither here nor there, you know. Um, so, you know, you kind of touched on this before, but what are some of the ideas that, you know, industry-wide you've seen that have been pretty successful for driving attendance for uh, season pass holders? 
you know, limited time events, you know, something that's maybe got a, a 10 day, two week, three week type of run, um, you know, exclusive events just for the pass holder that only they can do it. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, keeping the park open two or three hours after park close just for the pass holder, you know, things like that are going to, to help drive that uh, attendance from the season pass holders when it's limited time events or it's exclusive to them. Yeah. Yeah. And you can also do, you know, they bring a friend, you know, bring a friends are another thing where, you know, there's only a certain limited time that they can go with their friends, you know, th so those kind of limited time offers, you know, help as well. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, when we talk about special events, you know, we can break that down um, a lot further because special events does not have to be your weekend fireworks or your Mardi Gras or anything like that. It's, um, you know, uh, you know, having food items for a certain month. I've seen a lot of parks do that. Now that there's like a theme park culinary revolution where, you know, theme park food is not hot dogs and hamburgers. It's, uh, there's executive chefs now, which is such a weird thought to have. We discuss this every podcast, but, um, you know, having food items that are only available for a certain amount of time or having merchandise items that are limited in stock, like all of those are special events. And if you can communicate to your season pass holders, and that comes back down to your blogs and your social media and your public relations, then that's, that's a good way to drive revenue as well or drive attendance. Don't you think? Yeah, and you just you just mentioned yeah, and you just mentioned you know communicating with your season pass base. It is very important, I think, that you stay in touch with your pass holders. I don't think as long as you're giving them relevant information, uh, you can't touch base with them enough in terms of you know using email or you know maybe uh, you know the text messaging those type of programs. Um, you know you definitely want to stay in communication with them because even though they have a season pass, there's a lot of times that your park is out of sight, out of mind until you get it back in front of them again. So you want to make sure that you're always communicating. Let them know what's coming up. Let them know what those special opportunities are. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, so since since it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about, let's talk about um, communicating with the season pass holders. Um, we, you know, in, in, you know, previous conversation, I was, I remember telling you that I always looked forward to the monthly mailers I would get from my local park where, um, you know, it was never new information, but I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. So I love the pictures of the rides and stuff they put on them. Um, so mailers were huge in the nineties. It's 2022. What are the best ways to communicate with your season pass holders? And, and, and furthermore, what, what's the information you want to collect from season pass holders to make it easier to communicate with them? Uh, number one, two, and three is the email address. Okay. You know, the email that they, the email that they use. Uh, that's still, you know, there's all these different ways you can communicate now, but I still think email is still uh, the best way to do it. Uh, and the second way would be through uh, mobile, you know, being able to send notifications uh, that link to maybe uh, a blog or special offers, uh, upcoming events, those types of things. So those are the two channels, you know, primarily that you want to use to to communicate to season pass holders. You know, sure, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, uh, but not all your you know your your followers and page likes are going to be season pass holders. Uh, so you want to be able to just go you know straight to them, and the best way to do that is email and and through those mobile messaging type uh, type platforms. Yeah, I I I agree, and it seems like um the season pass holder uh, email addresses are more of just like a uh, an avenue for other things as well. Like you send out the newsletter and it's like, by the way, this is our Twitter handle. And you, cause it, it seems like you're not going to send out emails to everybody saying like, Hey, storm's coming in. We're closing the park early. Twitter is a way better for that. You know? But yeah. That's, I, I that's, suppose yeah. You want to use it for that. But the thing about it is, you know, you can be, you want to be, you know, frequent, uh, but you need to be relevant to what you're sending them. You know, just don't send them emails or send them emails. Have something uh, that reminds them, informs them, uh, you know, and, and has things in that email or that, um, you know, text mobile message that, uh, you know, lets them know here's something coming up. You don't want to miss this. You know, that fear of missing out is always a, a great tool. Yeah, fear of missing out is probably the probably the one of the worst psychological problems that we have in the day of social media, but it's the best marketing tool you can have. One day only, we're having this concert, we're having this event, we're having this parade. If you don't miss it, if you look away, you're going to miss something. So um, thanks, yeah, for, thanks think, for contributing to that, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and you, and you would think, you know, being a season pass holder that you're always in the know, but you're not. I mean, there's so many things that come up. You know, everyone's busy, uh, you know, with work. The, you know, the kids are playing, you know, baseball, softball, soccer, uh, football in the fall, those types of things. So you have to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're top of mind awareness with them. And that's by communicating on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, so, you know, when you when you have a season pass base, 
It's almost like you run a small city. Everybody's on foot. Population changes every day. But you know when they walk into that city, what they buy, what they eat, and essentially when they leave. Um, how can you leverage that information? That seems like a kind of perfect from a marketing standpoint. Well, it's a way to, uh, you know, the, the forecast project, uh, you know, you know what the business is going to be on, on certain days when you understand the guest behavior, how they're using their past, when they're using it, how late, you know, they're going to stay. Uh, it helps you with your, you know, your budgeting, your staffing, you know, just everything across the board business wise. Do you think that um, there's anything that, because uh, I know that like, um, like the Kroger Plus card uh, for, for Kroger, which for those of you outside of the our region of the United States, it's a, it's a major um, a grocery. But uh, essentially, they look at the, uh, like a formula for what you purchase, and uh, they figure out that if you buy these things, you're also likely to buy this thing. Do you think that anyone's ever really leveraged that in terms of like they often buy a snack, but or let's say they, they never buy a snack, but I bet for two dollars off Auntie Anne's, they would try it. Like, have you ever heard of that being done? I, I really, I don't think I have inside of a park. No, I mean, it, it, it uh, you know, I certainly have heard of it. It has been done. Um, I, I've seen that when I've gone to different parks, you know, getting the mobile message, uh, you know, as, as a pass holder or an email to let me know what's happening. So, uh, you know, that information and that, uh, you know, putting that into play, you know, it is it is being used. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you, you mentioned either a mobile message or email. And that's funny because that's that's actually two different um, avenues to go. We talked about with the perfect mobile app that um, theoretically speaking, you could push messages to people who are only within the geofence of the park. So people are in the park and you say, hey, dollar off Auntie Anne's if you show the app. You know, that drives per capita spending. The people are already there. You already have the attendance. But an email out is driving somebody to the park to spend this so uh, that's an interesting dynamic how you can really go either way with it you know and and email email's yeah, exactly. been a technology for 20 well i mean it's been technology for a long time but it's been widespread for 25 years but the mobile app thing is new so it, it's almost like a whole new door that just got opened up for being able to uh to drive per capita spending in the park yeah exactly and you know you want to make sure that you know, you, you're not sending them an offer that's going to be irrelevant to them. So, you know, for example, uh, as recently at a sporting event, used their app. And uh, the last three times I've gone there, my offer has been $2 off at Great Clips. So, you know, for me, I'm not going to use that, right? So do you, do you, uh, you want to make you sure that you're giving that me something that can I mean, I mean, I, I have hair. I, can you... I okay. Anyway, <laughs> so no, I, I appreciate your humor. <laughs> but just, but just to show, but just to show you though, you one thing that uh, you know, no matter who received that message, it's something that they would be interested in and that they can use. So for you audio listeners who have never watched the video podcast, Don is very, very bald, so he would not use a great clip. And then again, they they shave beards and stuff like that, so maybe that's what they're getting at. See, that's, I don't know. That's additional revenue. I, I I don't think that it's as bad as you think. And Ryan, people in my situation, we prefer hair challenged mm. as the, the terminology. So Don, it seems like the, one of the trends in the industry, and it's pretty widespread at this point, is to have season-long add-ons such as meal plans, drink plans, uh, fast pass, uh, anything like that. Um, you know, the benefit to the individual is, is pretty obvious. If you're going to visit six or seven times, then you know there's an intrinsic value to, to a lot of this stuff. What are some of the benefits to park operators to have programs like this? You know, the purchase of an all-day dining plan, for example, you know, that's made the guests more invested in spending the whole day at the park. So you're going to uh, lengthen that uh, stay for the guest. The more, the more likely they're going to spend on other things like merchandise, snacks, uh, games, desserts. You know, so that's where the advantage is for the parks, right? Do you think that there, there's a possibility of... Uh, being overpassed, shall we say, because you mentioned a lot of those things, but I've seen season-long stuff, for except for merchandise. You can't really do season-long merchandise that I know about. But I noticed there, there are parks that do season-long like arcade passes. Um, so do, do you think there's a possibility of doing too much of it? You know, I think it's what the demand is. You know, So you can do as much as the demand uh, allows you to do, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so, you know, if you look about where you spend money, I knew that, like, you know, when the meal plan thing seemed to be the first one, and then, you know, talking to a lot of people in the industry, it seemed like they were, um, like, how can I do that? 
you know, the people that were, um, you know, selling the fudge were like, can I do a season long fudge thing? So, um, you know, some of it came to fruition, some didn't. I like, I like, I saw that uh, there's one park I went to this year that had like, you know, for a hundred dollars, you could play, um, unlimited non-ticket games or something. I think that's cool because I don't think that the average season pass holder spends a hundred dollars in the arcades per season. Uh, I do. <laughs> I've been hooked on this one game and I've been spending a fortune on it. Uh, I don't know why, but, uh, um, you know, I, I think that if the, um, the, the initial upfront probably outweighs what they would spend, that's, that's usually, you know, a huge factor, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And also you have to look before you would introduce something is, you know, what's the capacity, you right. know, what, what's the value going to be for the guest and, and, you know, what's the capacity going to be for the park like there's certain attractions you know that you you think well maybe there should be you know season pass for that but then you look at the capacity and just realize you know guests per day and how many would have it and it just you know the math just doesn't work for you so you have to look at that too yeah i mean one thing that i i've noticed is that you know parks that as they've introduced uh, season long things especially food uh, a lot of the investment has been in the capacity you know um they're you know as opposed to having shacks and stuff like that where they sell walking tacos they've got huge mess halls you know every park seems to have one now so yeah that is part of the investment so don do you have any final thoughts on uh leveraging your season pass base or any any final bits of advice or anything like that you know just stay in touch communicate with the pass holders let them know what's going on yeah i mean it's uh, very important to uh to communicate it out because if nobody knows about it then you just wasted a lot of money all right so, uh, Don, we always do this at the end of the podcast, but we're, we're going to remember to do it earlier on, even though it's not the beginning. So make sure you like us on your favorite podcast apps. Uh, search for the Attractions Group podcast. Give us a subscribe. We are building our community now, so we really appreciate everyone's support. Uh, we've been blown away by how many people have downloaded it and come up to us at various parks and stuff and said that they've enjoyed it and they've learned something. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, the drive that we're trying to do right now is to get everybody to subscribe on YouTube. Hold on. I'm going to, um, I got a little graphic to put up here. Yeah. Okay. Everyone should subscribe on YouTube. Look for the attractions group podcast. All right. And then on YouTube, that's the visual version of, of the show, you know, so you can look at me and Don's noggins for, you know, an hour or whatever long the, the show is. But, uh, with YouTube, we can do live streaming. When we do live streaming, we can communicate with you directly. We can have chats and stuff. Um, so that's one of our short-term goals in the next maybe month or so to, is to be able to do that. Um, actually, one thing that we have discussed is that we want to do a live stream during the Golden Ticket Awards and kind of just give our commentary and you know high-five the people that win and stuff. So um, there's a lot to work out with that. It's not a guarantee, but uh, it would be it would be really fun to uh, to do that. So um, we're kind of early on in the subscription process with YouTube. So if you guys could subscribe it would be very very beneficial to to us and it'll, i think it'll be able to great community for you oh don 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 guess what it's time for yep it's time for pick six this is when we pick six of the most interesting stories in the theme park industry and we give our commentary on them so story number one Don, this is you this time. You get the first story. Tell us what's going on at Universal. Well, Ryan, Universal Orlando has patented AR headsets. Uh, guests of Universal Orlando may soon be wearing these futuristic helmets while roaming around the park, according to a pretty credible source, the Orlando Business Journal. The Orlando Business Journal. Awesome. Now, um, you know, it, augmented reality is something that uh, a lot of people are talking about nowadays. In fact, uh, there's strong rumors out there that Apple is going to come out with one. Whenever Apple comes out with something, it kind of makes it a thing. You know, when, <laughs> you know, they even advertised when when they came out with a 5G iPhone that made 5G real, that they, they marketed that with Verizon. And I think it's true. Um, so where do you see AR going in the theme park industry? Obviously, the two are made for each other. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's certainly a place for it. Um, you know, for me, I don't know that it would be something that I particularly would, would want to be experiencing, you know, with all the other things there is to do. But, you know, there's certainly a place for it. And I think you're going to see more and more, uh, you know, uh, parks throughout the the industry, you know, looking to incorporate this. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you uh, with that. Um, and one of the things that's always come to mind for me is that with when it comes to AR, um, I feel like there's a novelty involved with it, but there's nothing that can replace actually having physical things there. Um, so, 
you know, if you look at, for example, Universal Studios, a lot of their rides were screen based for a long time. And as a result of that, they got a reputation for, you know, you go there and you ride around, you look at screens and they're trying to backpedal from that now. I'm wondering if AR is going to be very similar where AR people want some AR, but they don't want all AR. Like, can you can you see that maybe being a dynamic that's possible with this? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's just going to be a little different, uh, you know, as you're walking around Universal Orlando and you see, you know, these guests wearing these helmets. Yeah. And yeah, no, the technology is really cool and it's very valuable. And I, I honestly think that you're going to have, you know, the AR glasses that everyone's going to be wearing in five years or whatever. But integrate into a theme park thing where they project something there. I think that a little bit of it will go a long way, but relying on it will make it so, you know, because if you can do something in a park and it blows your mind in a year, you're going to be able to do that at your house. So they, they almost need to pump the brakes on that one. Awesome. Cool. So, yeah, that's exciting. Um, again, it's a patent, so it's not announced or anything like that. But, um, you know, that's a few years away. But we'll have to see what happens with that, don't you think? Yeah, we'll keep an eye All on it. All right. So story number two, um, and this was coming from uh, a park that's very near and dear to us because it's run by a good friend. Um, at Six Flags Fiesta, Texas, Dr. Diabolical's Cliffhanger has an open date. So Dr. Diabolical's Cliffhanger is a new uh, dive B&M coaster. Um, and the thing that's unique about it is it has a 95 degree drop. So it's actually a little bit bigger of a drop than um, uh, than you're used to. Because a B&M dive coaster is usually 90 degrees. So this one curves in on itself. Kind of like uh, the uh, SNS Locos or... Um, uh, like Maverick at Cedar Point. Uh, the open date is going to be July 30th, you know, and then, um, you know, we got a tweet out of Six Flags. I think we got it out of Jeffrey Siebert himself, the general manager, and he, he put up a picture of his crew and he was talking about how, you know, they spent all night certifying this ride. So you've got to run it a certain number of cycles in order for it to be certified by the state. Um, so that's really exciting. So, Don, what do you think about dive coasters in general? Are you a big fan of them? Have you been on a lot of them? Oh, yeah, I love dive coasters. I think they're, you know, th that experience for me is, you know, so unique that it's, it's kind of like the, you know, the drop tower type rides where no matter how many times uh, that you're going to experience it, you still really can't pick that moment, that exact moment when it's going to drop. So, you know, it has an added element to it. You know, I've always enjoyed the drop. Uh, the dive coasters. Yeah, I have too. I think they're kind of underrated. Um, they're really fun. And, and um, for those of you who haven't experienced them, they actually do this sadistic thing where they hang you over the edge and hold you there for a few seconds before dropping you. So that's really crazy. So that's uh, July 30th down there at Fiesta, Texas and San Antonio. Um, you know, uh, so that is uh, a real hidden gem of the, the Six Flags chain. It seems like um, Jeffrey and his team down there do a lot to make sure that everything's themed and stuff. So I, that's, that's such a cool park. When was the last time you were at Fiesta, Texas? It has been a while. Um, I would say probably 2002, 2003 range. Oh yeah. So we're in a completely different world now, you know, um, you know, that's a couple ownership changes for, for Six Flags, but, uh, the whole park's built into a quarry, which I think is really interesting. And, some of the rides actually interact with the quarry walls. So I think that's so cool. So anyway, um, yeah, was it July? <laughs> I got to pull up the graphic again so I can tell. July 30th is the open date for like Dr. Diabolical's cliffhanger. So make sure that you visit San Antonio, Texas. Remember that they are now year-round. I believe they're only open weekends during the off-season. But you can go down there and enjoy this uh, fantastic new ride and, you know, get your new uh, dive credit, you know. Awesome. So, Don, story number three, since you are the quintessential Disney guy, tell us what's going on with Disney now. Well, new magic bands are coming to the Walt Disney World Resort starting next week. The Orlando Weekly is reporting this. Uh, the all-new magic band, seems like they've updated this multiple right. times, but it'll have um, official, and we presume magical coming from disney um it'll debut again we said you know looking july 27 type range um the new wearable technology will offer an array of uh, new amenities compared to the previous magic bands uh guests will be able to embark on adventures with characters like tinkerbell i think it's pretty cool yeah yeah i i mean I, again you know part of um 
part of the lure of Disney is trying to figure out how they do it. And I think this um, near field communication technology that they use for the magic bands is, is, is incredible. I'm a huge proponent of it. Um, I know that it costs a four. I think from what I understand, I think that the published original budget was a billion dollars to outfit Disney world. And then they ended up reporting that it was like 5 billion or something to actually do it. Um, but the benefits have been there, you know, because not only can you, you know, you can load money on it. We talked about that with the cashless thing. You can, uh, you can open your, 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 uh, hotel door and stuff, but you can also have a unique experience with it. And that's what the magic band plus is all about. The magic band band plus uh, what they've announced so far is that it'll interact with the 50th anniversary stuff. So um, I'm not exactly sure what that means, um, but you can interact around the park with uh, 50th anniversary statues or whatever, you know, uh, and in um, the Star Wars area. Uh, I know that right now you can interact with the with, use the app to like start up uh, one of the droids or whatever, but you're going to be able to use your magic band for that. So, Don, the, the magic band thing... Um, it's funny because they put it in Walt Disney World, but it hasn't really gone to their other Disney locations. And I think it's probably a cost thing. But do you think that technology like that is the future of the industry? Well, I mean, certainly it's going to be for, you know, Disney. But, uh, you know, you'd like to see more things like that. But, it, you know, you mentioned the cost. You know, it's just it's exorbitant, you know, so who has that, uh, you know, kind of money. So I don't know that you would ever see it um, like industry wide. Uh, but, um, you know, definitely, you know, it's, it's, you know, interesting, it's, uh, engaging, uh, you know, so you'd like to see it rolled out everywhere, but I just don't see how it'd be feasible to do that everywhere. Let me give you a, um, an example of, of what I'm thinking as far as it rolling out everywhere. And by everywhere, I don't necessarily mean, you know, the park in the middle of Pennsylvania that has one ride, obviously it's kind of like the cashless thing We're we're talking about on a, a certain scale at least, but, um, let me give you an anecdote. So there was a um, an article, I think it was in USA Today, with the CEO, well, now former CEO of WWE, Vince McMahon. And this was like 2005. That was probably, probably like 2008 or nine, And he was talking about how their weekly show was going HD. Okay. So one of the, so the reporter asked him, um, you know, since you guys are always considering yourself like on top of stuff, like why didn't you go HD? you know, three years ago when it became available on the airwaves. And furthermore, you know, why don't, why didn't you wait till the first of the year? Like why now essentially is what they were asking. And he said, there's always a golden zone. There's always a time when it's, it's too early and it's too expensive and it's too late and it's passe and you have to adopt right in that golden zone. So I think that as the technology improves and it gets cheaper and you can start outfitting parts in the millions rather than the billions, there's going to be a benefit there. But then again, you know, if you're a park, you don't want to get it 15 years from now when everyone's seen it already, you know? So, so I think that there is a case for that. Don't you agree? I mean, yeah, there's certainly a case for it, but I think also, you know, you have to look at, uh, you know, what the opportunity to use it is for a guest, you know, uh, most of the, the seasonal parks, uh, you know, you're drawing from, you know, maybe a hundred, 120 miles, you know, for the most part. Uh, you know, they're, they're not staying on, you know, release, you know, the hotels, those types of things. So I think you just want to, you know, if it's just for an in-park experience, you know, it's going to be different than, than what you're going to do at a Disney where you are, you know, normally staying on property at one of the, the resorts, you're, you're going to the different, uh, you know, Disney things around Orlando and that. So there's a lot of different ways you can use that than just in the park. Yeah. I mean, well, what I was envisioning for your regular, uh, Six Flags, Hershen, whatever park would be, um, it would be a magic band in lieu of season pass. So you tap to get into the park, you, you, uh, you know, the declining balance or, or whatever, if you wanted to, um, and then if you want to have the interactive elements, you could. Uh, and then one thing that I thought was cool uh, that they do with the Magic Bands that I think is a huge benefit is um, a lot of parks offer season-long um, ride photos, you know, like different programs involved with that. Um, and I've had that on and off, but oftentimes I didn't get the photo because there's a big crowd of people there looking at their photo and I just, I don't want to deal with it. And it's just not worth it. And then, you know, you have a declining value at that point, so you don't get it the next year. But I know on Seven Dwarfs Mine Ride at Disney World in Orlando, um, they actually have it so there's a um, an NFC communication thing in the lap bar. So it knows if you, with a magic band, have the photo pass, you're sitting in that seat and it sends it to you automatically. I think there's a benefit for things like that. 
you know, I mean, and we can sit here and speculate as to what you can use it for besides that. But I, the fact that, you know, you are, it, it identifies who you are, where you are, what you're trying to do, and it's able to take action on it. I think those statements alone, you could think of 10 or 15 million dollar ideas to, to implement. Yeah, no, no, I do think you could see down the road where, you know, a lot of parks transition from plastic uh, to a band, you know, for the season pass with the technology that's out there. I can definitely see it going that route. Yeah, and then then it comes down to you know when we talk about time frames, you know they came out with the Magic Bands like God it was like ten years ago now, um, but nowadays smartphones are so good and like you know most people have these Apple watches you know, um, if I had to choose like it, when I went to Di obviously there's a novelty about having a Magic Band but if I was a regular in Orlando, and I I was an annual pass holder and I had to say okay I can either use my Apple watch or I can use my magic band. I'm sure as heck using my Apple watch because I don't have to root around and find it and put it on and have an extra thing on my wrist and so on. I use my watch for everything. I use my watch for payments for my season passes, everything just because pulling out my phone is one less thing I have to do. So uh, that's, I think that um, maybe, you know, con contradicting what I said earlier, maybe in five years or so, the spirit of the technology is there, but not necessarily with the bands themselves, because you got to think the distribution would be kind of expensive too. You know, even if they're, you know, maybe a dollar each to manufacture, and then I mean the price would come down. But you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of season pass holders in some instances. Like that—that's a good chunk of change. Would Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, just handing out anything to all season pass holders and stuff is just—I mean, yeah, the the price is is pretty incredible. Don, we need to celebrate. What well, today is the twenty fourth. That makes tomorrow one of the greatest days of the year. National, National Carousel, Carousel Day, my day. favorite day of the year, dude. Carousels—they're one of those things where you know if you if you if carousels and band organs, it, like things like that, if they don't force a smile on you, then there's something wrong. National Carousel Day really embodies. Um, you know, carousels and how wonderful they are and they're ornate and they're fun to ride and they make you feel like a kid again. Don, what's your favorite carousel? Well, I'm going to go with the one at Kings Island, the Grand Carousel, uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, it was the first carousel that I ever rode, you know, first uh, one that I was, you know, kind of drawn to as a, as a young kid when it was at Cincinnati's Coney Island before it went uh, to Kings Island in 1971. But uh, one's, uh, you know, kind of special. It's one of 89 carousels built by the Philadelphia Toboggan Company. Uh, it was one of the last. It's labeled number 79. Um, but it's just always been, you know, a part of my memories. You know, I think when you think about carousels, one of the things that they do is they conjure up those childhood memories. And every time I walk by the Grand Carousel Kings Island, I think back to those days at Coney Island, you know, my first rides on it and that. So, you know, that's one of the things that makes carousels special. You know, they just remind you of a simple time of your life. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, um, carousels are cool. Now, let me ask you this. This is something that I, I don't know if there's a straight answer or not. People call them carousels and they call them merry-go-rounds. What's the difference between a carousel and a merry-go-round or are they the same thing? They are not the same thing. You know, I think when you're, you know, you look at carousels, they all turn uh, counterclockwise and a merry-go-round, they revolve clockwise. So that's basically your big Wait, difference. Wait, that's true. That's real. Are you, are you lying to me? Yeah. Yeah. You go, you, you go to a playground and look at the little merry-go-round, you know, it, it's going to, um, you know, rotate. It's going to revolve clockwise. And then you look at the grand carousel. Or you go to King's Dominion, Dollywood, Knobles, which has a fantastic carousel uh, down at uh, Knobles. But you look at them, they're all traveling counterclockwise. Okay, okay. L we need to break this down further because you literally just blew my mind this late in the show. So, so first of all, let's, you're not making this up, right? Like this is this is is this something you observed or is this like in stone no, somewhere? It's observa observation, oh, you know. And I remember back to the first, you know, I, when I grew up in Deer Park, Ohio, when I was a kid. Uh, you know, we had Chamberlain Park was right behind us and they had the little merry-go-round, you know, and I remember we had the run, you know, in that counterclockwise or not, I mean, the clockwise way to, you know, when you're running and then you hop on and it's going clockwise, you know, then you go to th these amusement theme parks, you're getting on the carousel and you are going counterclockwise. So it was an observation. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's, um, to, to, I always kind of defined it that, um, yeah, a merry-go-round is a ride and a carousel is a work of art. So something like um, King's Island, King's Dominion, any of the PTC stuff, is that's a carousel because it's ornate and it's got a band or, you know, that sort of stuff. Not that any one of those things is necessarily 
um, baked into my definition. But when we talk about like the fiberglass ones, like the chance ride ones that are like for kids and stuff, that's more of a merry-go-round. So when we're talking about, you know, you know, a boat versus a yacht, you know, are they both boats? Yes. But one's a yacht and one's a boat. And it's, you kind of draw the line yourself as to which one's which. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, it does. But you know, you talked, uh, you mentioned, um, you know, these horses and different, uh, you know, animals that you see on the, on the carousels being, you know, pieces of art, you know, sure. It doesn't go 300 feet you know, high. It doesn't go 90 miles an hour. Uh, but these are classic attractions. And I, and I, you know, for me, it's one of the first rides that I'm going to seek when I go to a, to a park, you know, I'm going to experience the carousel. I'm going to make sure I ride it. It's a, you know, a must do attraction for me wherever I go. That's awesome. Yeah. I actually, um, kind of judge a park on how they, <laughs> how they treat their carousel, you know, because if you see their carousel, um, and it's, you know, ornate and they kept it up, uh, to me, it implies that you care, you know, and you, you have the means to care for it. Uh, but if it's, you know, you've got a hundred year old carousel and it looks a hundred years old and, and stuff, that's, that's just sad in my opinion. All right. No, they're kind of like the heartbeat of your park. You know, yeah. when you come in, the, uh, you know, a lot of them are located along the midways or they're in like certain, you know, uh, old traditional, you know, uh, theme park, amusement park type settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, they're, they're an important piece of your ride lineup. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. So anyway, Don, um, time to move on to uh, your second favorite city besides Norwood, Ohio. Um, tell us what's going on in Tampa. Well, in the Tampa Bay area, uh, Surf Park is envisioned for Tampa Bay. Uh, it would be a large lagoon uh, with, with ocean quality uh, manufactured waves. It'd be surrounded by theme park style amenities, you know, like restaurants, bars, concert spaces, you know, maybe even hotels. Uh, they're looking to make this a reality in 2025, and I think it's just what the Tampa Bay area needs. I'm sure they have bush gardens there, uh, but when you look just up the road to Orlando, in Orlando, there is so much to see, so much to do. You simply can't do it all in a day or two, so you spend a week there. Uh, in Tampa, not that case right now. So something like this would um, you know, bring maybe seven, 800,000 extra visitors a year to the Tampa Bay area. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, instead of spending one or two days there, maybe you're spending three or four now. There. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, one, one thing I've always noticed about Tampa is that it's a beautiful city. Um, and it, there used to be a situation where you know, if you were going down to Florida for Disney, you go to Orlando. If you were going down to Florida for... Um, you know, for the beach, you would go to the Clearwater Tampa area. Uh, nowadays, it seems like uh, Panama City Beach is more like that city uh, being closer, you know, a closer drive, especially from this area. Um, but uh, yeah, so the surf park, um, my understanding, and are you reading the article the same way where essentially it creates artificial waves and then you can learn to ride a yes. surfboard? Yeah, exactly. How good of a surfer are you, Don? Now, I see you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, not okay. at all, you know, never mind. You ever thing. tried it? You know, so, uh, once and, uh, it was not fun. Well, you probably you had know, that I, emblem uh, did, from the Brady Bunch, uh, around your neck, the great Brady war. That was bad luck. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, of course, you know what I'm talking about. It's Brady. Bunch. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. No, but I, I mean, I tried it and I mean, there is, uh, you know, there's a skill involved with that. And, uh, that was not uh, one of the skills that, uh, you know, I possessed was certain. Yeah, yeah, there's like balance. That's that's one of the things that I, I'm not great with. Uh, it's, for something that's like squiggly and stuff, I can't do it. Now, one thing that that does remind me of is, is a place um, I helped do the grand opening PR for uh, called Wake Nation. And it's up in Fairfield near you. Um, and that's at Joyce Park. So shout out to Wake Nation. I haven't been there in like 10 years. But that's a, um, a cable wakeboarding park. And so as opposed to being towed behind a boat... They had a circular lake and um, they had this cable system up above where it would tow you around on a wakeboard. So I was able to do that, but that's an extra like like a third point of gravity, I guess, a third point of balance. Um, so I was able to pull to pull that one off. <laughs> awesome. So Surf Park, hopefully coming to Tampa. That's not something that is uh, has broken ground or anything like that, but it's... It's, um, it's a vision. It, it's, a it's a vision. vision so I, I don't think they have necessarily any like land tied down or anything but yeah when that thing uh if they do end up breaking ground we'll have to follow the progress of that on on the program here don okay so story number six of the pick six there is a new attraction coming to the american dream mall called active games now active games uh 
you know, the American Dream Mall is up in the Meadowlands, New York, New Jersey area. And that's home to Nickelodeon Universe, which is an indoor theme park. And it's a mall owned by the owners of Mall of America. Active Games is a modern arcade. So it's not so much about sitting down playing video games. It's more about uh, VR and, you know, physical stuff and probably escape rooms and stuff like that. But so, Don, do you see this as the future of video games in the theme park industry is more of the hands-on stuff? Or do you think that there's a future for sit-down games and stuff? I mean, I feel like that has changed a lot in the last 10 years anyway, you know? Yeah, it definitely has evolved. You know, this is where we're at right now. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the time is right. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, what's the right timing to do, you know, different things with the technology, with the, the magic bands. But, I mean, it's the same thing where you've hit that time where, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, grown to this level. It's, uh, you know, got a great, you know, great and growing fan base, you know, for, for this kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I, I, I think it's kind of cool. Um, I, I So when I was in the escape room business, you know, half decade ago when it was young, um, we talked to a park operator about opening an escape room at a park. And they said it would be profitable. It would be successful. But you must generate a certain amount of revenue per square foot. And it does not have the throughput to uh, to generate that. Um that kind of makes me wonder because it's like, you know, it, it's almost like with arcades that you kind of want to get them in and out as quickly as possible. Uh, something like this would take a little bit longer. But then again, you can always charge more for a longer experience. Like, don't you think? Oh, I agree with that. It's definitely an interesting concept. And, uh, you know, the gaming industry, I mean, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of people interested in it. Yeah, I remember it. um a park that I go to, they had like the E it wasn't EA sports. It was some sort of gaming competition. And there was a lot of people there. Like, I can't even believe it's a thing. I don't understand video games. Like I, I played Nintendo when I was younger, but I've never owned an Xbox or whatever, but um, yeah. yeah and you wouldn't believe some of the on. following. Yeah. The following that some of these gamers have, you know, when, when they're out in public somewhere, you know, that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like seeing, uh, you know, Justin Bieber or something on stage, you know, where they just rush to him and, and uh, you know, want to get pictures with him, want to get autographs, all those kind of things. So, you know, these gamers have a huge following, too. Yeah, yeah, they really do. And it's funny how people get a following. And, and I'm guilty of this, too. Uh, so this is going to transition into a future episode when we start talking about influencers and stuff. But they're on the outside looking in. Um, you know, let, let's, let's st- step off the whole like video game thing, because this is going to be true for them, too. But they're the people that do the daily vlogs and stuff. And it's kind of like from an outsider looking in, you you know, you wonder, like, why do you care what this guy's doing today? But, you know, you start watching a few of them, you feel like you know them. And you're interested in, yeah. you know, oh, they went to Costco today. It, it's stupid, but it's it's mindless. And But, like, what isn't anymore? It all started with the reality TV and stuff. And this just takes that to another level. Um, but, yeah, the, the gamers and stuff... Um, they probably, you know, because they, they stream on like Twitch and stuff. And don't ask me to explain Twitch. I do not understand Twitch. But um, uh, like uh, they, they have a following and stuff. And that's another opportunity for somebody you could bring into your park. I mean, just bring them into um, just to play a video game, you know. Exactly. Like I said, they've got, uh, you know, huge followings, you know, uh, to me, you know, it's, you know, it's after my, you know, when I was, you know, in my twenties, you know, and that there wasn't anything like that. So, you know, today, uh, you know, they're superstars. Yeah, they, they truly are. Um, well, anyway, Don, that brings us to the end of pick six. Uh, so, you know, any final thoughts that have come up in the last few minutes about the season pass thing or anything like that, or any final words of advice before we pick up the program again next week? You know, see, I mean, it's it's huge. It's interesting how it's evolved over the last, say, 40, you know, 45 years for, for parks, where at one time it was maybe 10% of your business. You know, then maybe it was one-third, where it was one-third season pass, one-third group sales, one-third, uh, you know, was, was the, you know, the single-day ticket purchaser to, to now, where just about everything you do is going to revolve around, you know, building that season pass base, and then everything else comes after that. All right, Don. Well, that ties up episode six, talking about season pass sales. You know, I was thinking, you know, six episodes in, probably around 10, we're going to start getting a bunch of sponsors and stuff, don't you think? I don't know, Ryan. 
I don't know that uh, we're the type of people that are, you know, going to be in it just for the money. Yeah, I mean, I feel like people only do this just to get paid, and that's just really sad. It's not us. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I think everyone knows what I'm drinking: Diet Coke. Here, what do you got in your your Bucky's cup? Bucky's gas station, Mount Richmond, Zero. Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, Mountain Mountain Dew Zero. Oh, I I like I I like Mountain Dew Zero. Um. It, it tastes a lot like Mountain Dew. The diet I can't do. That's there's something about that that's just uh, it's unpalatable to me. But the zero, I'm a big fan of that. You know, a little on the sweet yeah, side, so I can't like do original. it all day. You know, awesome. Yeah, but it's close to tasting like the original, wouldn't you? I say? would say that it's uh, probably like in a side by side test, you could tell the difference. But if I randomly handed you a Mountain Dew and then a few hours later handed you a zero, you probably wouldn't be able to tell which one's which. I, I honestly, I think uh, Coke Zero is kind of... Maybe, I mean, maybe. to me, uh, but like Coke Zero, I feel like Coke Zero definitely has, it's a little less sweet, a little bit more bitter than a normal Coke, just, just a little bit, but they, I, so I know they reformulated it and then went from Coke Zero to Coke Zero Sugar. My girlfriend swears that this isn't true and I make it up, but I'm pretty sure they reformulated it again like three months later because in that, maybe it was the same marketing campaign, but it went from being good to being like really good and now it's really really good so i don't have any coke zero on me that's why i'm drinking the diet coke but um the uh the cokes especially this freestyle oh god i don't drink like normal drinks i don't like to have that kind of sugar intake but coke classic out of the freestyle like once a month i'll treat myself to just one good swig of that and it's so fresh and so oh mm, gosh so coke at attractions underscore group, send us a DM to sponsor us. I already said electric Coke Zero stuff. I think you sell Coke at Bucky's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah awesome. Coke Zero is great. Uh, you know, I have a supply of Coke Zero at home too. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, once again, uh, Twitter attraction at attractions underscore group. Follow us on your favorite podcast apps, uh, and then uh, you make sure you follow us on YouTube. Look for the Attractions Group podcast. Following us on YouTube will allow us to start doing live streams. Um, so we can interact with you guys with a live chat and stuff. Uh, we are essentially a weekly podcast. We're still getting our cadence down, so we don't have a set day yet. But any kind of feedback as to what day you think we should uh, have our podcast up, or at least up by, would be would be very helpful. And, you know, once again, thank you so much for your support. So, Don, once again, thank you for putting up with me for this fine hour on this program. And well, it's been fun, right? We Ryan. will see everybody next week. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>